All right, man. You ready? Yep. Welcome into the Waiver Fire Podcast. April 19th, 420 is tomorrow. Nick Smith, JP, we've got a lot of stuff. You've got a new mic. That's right. I don't know if anybody can tell the difference this week, but I've got one. It sounds crisp, but your last mic honestly was really good too. So I think I think the upgrade might be a little less significant. I was going from Google Pixel Buds to, to a mic. So yeah, I think we're sounding good. I'll have to maybe check audio levels or whatever, but we got some good stuff today, man. JP, you and I finally did our super early rankings. Yeah, I was excited about doing it, but also a little bit, it was tough to do it. I started out just doing my overall rankings, like my draft, top like 200 or something like that. That was really tough, but it was a lot easier to do my just RB and wide receiver rankings. Yeah. When you told me that you had started down that road, that, that, that sounds awesome. I definitely want to turn my positional rankings into like what you said, a draft day guide of like, you know, this clump of running backs followed by this clump of wide receivers or whatever. And then quarterbacks, that'll be really cool. I think we can definitely turn both of our lists into that. Um, so we'll talk a little, we'll talk some of the players that we, we most disagree on from our rankings. We've got some news and then I teased out a little bit of just high level, uh, stats from last year that I think might be a little bit surprising and interesting to talk about. And then after all of that fantasy goodness, we still have a movie to talk about, man. You recommended the thin blue line a documentary um, kind of following up after our searching for sugar man documentary. So we're keeping that theme running and uh, man, we got a lot to get through. Let's, let's start with the news just to get some things out of the way. First off RIP Alex Smith and Julian Edelman both retired. You know, neither were fantasy relevant for the last couple of years, but but had some flashes just a few years back, man. And I don't know. I, I keep feeling like we're getting old seeing these players retire that that we had uh, that we had played in fantasy just a couple of years ago. But it is what it is. Julian Edelman, you know, going out kind of on a whimper. Alex Smith at least got that, uh, you know, that comeback season after his horrific leg break. And played and played just fine for Washington, but uh, he was going to be regulated to a, you know, not even really a backup, like one of those backup QBs that's really just like a QB coach in disguise. Um, he got offered that from Jacksonville to kind of coach up Trevor Lawrence, and he turned it down. So he'll retire, but he got to go out on a pretty cool note. Maybe some more relevant. Jadavion Clowney is going to the Browns and. You had introduced me last year in the Kia League to defensive players, which actually was really fun. I mean, I, I did not study it very much each week. I just picked up whoever was scoring, I guess, the most points. But uh, that was really cool. And J Jadavion Clowney still has juice 
and now match him up side by side with Miles Garrett. You know, that defense was kind of middle of the pack last year. It could be pretty ferocious this year. Yeah, I agree. Um, by the way, I think my microphone wasn't on before. Does that sound any different? The volume's a little low. It's a little faint. How about how about that? Yeah, that's sounding way. nice. Yep, that's sounding nice. Anyway, um, yeah, that that defense is is pretty stout. I think it. I think it's good for us because as fantasy players, we want Nick Chubb to be the greatest, you know, gift from God this year. And the better the defense, the better Nick Chubb is, the less cream hunt gets on the field. Although, you know, we might have some pieces of cream hunt lying around as well. So, but Nick Chubb, we're wanting him to have every touch and uh, this just helps that. And then even more fantasy relevant and maybe upsettingly. So, James Conner gets signed to the Cardinals to back up Chase Edmonds to be their starter. Are they just in a complete timeshare 50 50? It is so murky. And I don't know. I, I lean still towards Chase at least getting the first shot because of his, you know, team chemistry. <sighs> but I could see James Conner being the starter week one. And if he's not hurt, the starter on that team is very important. Yeah. I, I, I lean towards Chase Edmonds too. And obviously my rankings are reflecting that. Yeah. I, I just, I think he's awesome. He's, I don't like James Conner as a player. It might be like some sort of like, like, subconscious bias or something like that but it's not because i used to own him as a fantasy player <laughs> I, I i never picked him or anything like that like he wasn't like someone i hoped was good like i just always never liked that guy yeah james connor never burnt me either in fantasy and i have the same feeling i think he's just kind of a plodding back nothing special always hurt um seems like a perfect backup but you know, I heard from fantasy footballers that in their Arizona Cardinals fan, they think that Chase Edmonds is is too small to handle the full role, the full role. So he might get turned into that pass catching specialist, which would be a real bummer um, because Kyler Murray doesn't really throw to the tight end. I mean, to the running back very much, but something definitely to keep on our, our eyes on during the off season and particularly in the preseason. Um, you know, maybe it turns out to be good for Chase in that, the uh, the Cardinals don't draft a running back, so that could have easily scared us off of Chase as well. So there's still hope. There's still hope for a Chase Edmonds season this year. Let's. I just want to quickly throw out some um, some stats that I teased out from last year, and it's it get it it really gets into who got lucky or unlucky in the touchdown department from wide receivers or running backs. Things that very oftentimes um, tip back to the norm tip, you know, people who didn't get many touchdowns, they'll, they'll get a little more this year and therefore be more fantasy relevant. So players that had the lowest touchdowns per target for wide receivers. So players that have certainly room to grow in my opinion, 
Robbie Anderson, Cooper Cup, Jerry Judy, Jarvis Landry, and Terry McLaurin. All of them with pretty massive targets last year in very, very few touchdowns. And you look at those players, and, and a lot of it makes sense, right? Like bad quarterback play from Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke and et cetera, et cetera. Most of these players just have terrible quarterbacks. I mean, Cooper Cup with um, Jared Goff, not, not too bad, but man, Cooper Cup really struggled to get touchdowns. So, so I think these are players that, that have room to improve for sure. And, and honestly, I'm kind of looking forward to, to all of these players at their draft stock, except for Jerry Judy. I'm, I'm still just not too excited because it is, it is Drew Locke and that, that sucks, but Robbie uh, I'm pretty game for Cooper cup. He's slipping in drafts Jarvis and well, Terry, Terry is very hyped, but I think he deserves it. He's an absolute beast. Um, Terry is he's the touchdowns are coming. Yeah. If he could get up to, you know, eight touchdowns, Oh, he, he's just going to be a, a monster. So that's very exciting. Um, who got lucky? Who had the highest touchdowns per target? Adam Thielen, the guy that I've been really hyping, and I am still excited about him this year, but I'm not going to lie. After I saw that, I did lower him in my rankings a little bit. Number one by a healthy margin. He had so many touchdowns per target. Devonte Adams, we know he had the insane touchdown total, um, but still to to go so insane with the rate as well. Some regression is probably coming his way. He's still my number one, but some regression. He's not going to have eighteen touchdowns or whatever it was. Mike Evans, that was kind of clear as day. He was scoring all yeah. those one yard touchdowns every week. He was kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that's like the eyeballs, eyeballs emoji. Yeah, that one's that one's easy. Tyreek Hill also, you know, makes sense. He's the deep threat. He's he's the home run ball. Um, And then AJ Brown kind of also makes sense, right? Like it's a run first team. He's he's that play um, run option pass monster, you know, deep threat bullies, cornerbacks and whatnot just a beast in the touchdown apartment. And, and again, it's kind of easy to shrug these off a little bit and say, well, they have great quarterbacks or they're just absolute monster athletes, but usually these do regress. You know, typically you don't keep these incredibly high touchdown per target ratio, particularly with Adam Thielen. Um, and I, and to a lesser extent, I think Mike Evans, he was just getting a little ridiculous. Yeah. But those other three players, you just straight up want them. Like you want those guys. <sighs> I think, I think you're a little high. I'm fading a little bit on AJ Brown. That might be to my detriment, but I know that, um, uh, who was their wide receiver? Corey Davis did get traded away. Jonu Smith got traded away. I know that it's just AJ Brown, but it just still feels like it still feels like a running, a rushing team, man. I mean, how insane can he be? Ah. But he probably will be absolutely massive. Um, I understand. I just I I'm buying in on the the AJ Brown hype big time. Yeah, I mean he is an incredible beast on the field. Uh, for running backs, some of the unluckiest running backs, few very few touchdowns per rush attempt. Austin Eckler, Devin Singletary, who 
could be the running back one on that team. And I know splitting time with Zach Moss and maybe even more importantly, splitting red zone work with um, Josh Allen. So that makes a lot of sense, but maybe some uh, good regression there. Cam Akers, horrible touchdown per rush attempt. Damian Harris of New England, somebody I'm actually kind of rising on. I mean, he is the running back one on that team and their defense is going to be a lot better this year. Damian Harris could surprise. Raheem Mostert, I think you and I basically see completely eye to eye on him. He's going to have a fine season. Miles Gaskin, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, and Zeke all had really low touchdown counts from their rush attempts. Yeah. I like some of those players, though. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited about really a lot of these players um, kind of coming back to that average, at least. I think Clyde definitely should get some more. Uh, Zeke, mm, Zeke probably will, but there's just so many targets and weapons at the red zone. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for a lot of those players. And some players that got pretty lucky in the amount of touchdowns they scored per rush attempt. Alvin Kamara, number one. And I know he's an absolute freak beast athlete and the line is good, but still you got to expect some regression, particularly if Drew Brees isn't there and that offense maybe is a little more stagnant. DeAndre Swift comes in at number two as the luckiest player. J.K. Dobbins, Antonio Gibson, Nick Chubb, and Dalvin Cook. And, you know, I look at Nick Chubb and I look at Dalvin Cook and they're just absolute monster beasts. So I try to shrug those off. But J.K. Dobbins and Antonio Gibson, it makes me a little nervous, man. Um, If they got lucky last year and, and they were you know, back end running back ones. Ah, it makes me feel a little nervous to take them as running back ones this year. Yeah. Do either one of us have it there? Have those guys? That- I think yeah. that I had um, Antonio Gibson as a one. Yeah. We both have him as you have him at 11. I am at 10. Um, so, and then J.K. Dobbins, you have him at 19. I have him at 14. So I see him a little higher there. I think you may be more right than I, particularly in any sort of PPR format. I think I might move mine a little bit back. Like I have him ahead of Joe Mixon and Clyde. I might put both those players um, in front of J.K. Dobbins. Just, man, he got lucky with touchdowns and doesn't catch the ball. So I think those are some pretty eye-opening stats. I mean, those are easy stats to, and, and they're pretty sticky, meaning that, you know, those are typical to regress um, or change to, to what they, you know, their luck status or whatever. So I like to tease out those names. They certainly changed my opinion on players just a little bit, a couple of points or whatnot. Um, and let's look at some players that, so we both have our very, very early rankings These things are absolutely going to change. God, they're going to change in two weeks when the NFL draft happens. But uh, it's going to be pretty fast. Yeah, that's going to be so exciting, man. I think we have we have one more show until then. Um, So we'll maybe talk a little bit of buzz next week. But um, it's just too fun to do some to do some rankings. This is our first time doing, or at least my first time doing rankings. So it was really cool to kind of tease out uh, where players fit. Um, So let's start at running back. And we talked a little bit pre-show, but I think one of our starkest differences is Jonathan Taylor. 
I have him all the way up at number five. You have him at number 10. Do you think that's more you disliking him or me just loving him? Um, I actually really like Jonathan Taylor as a player. I think he's awesome. I think he could if he if he was what he was last year, of course he's gonna be amazing. That's like top five. Yeah. Um I don't know if it's gonna be like that though. Um The quarterback situation gives me pause. I'm with you there. It, it is. I, I do see that offense being a little more stagnant. You know, Carson Wentz, I started to look into him a little bit more. He was easily the most sacked quarterback of any quarterback last year. I think he had 50 sacks by far the most. So horrible offensive line work probably held the ball too long as well. But now he goes behind one of the best offensive lines. So I think there's room for improvement from Carson Wentz, but yes, I do think that the offense slows down a little bit. And even if that means a bad quarterback, maybe some bad wide receivers. Okay. They lean on Jonathan Taylor more. You want those, you want those uh, touchdown opportunities and those probably will go down. I'm with you there. It's just, so for me, fantasy is just all about, minimizing risk and if we're minimizing risk with running backs i mean it's really tough it starts for me in my rankings around six zeke we don't know zeke's a lot of question marks but yeah you know saquon saquon's a lot of question marks but everybody else in the top 10 is just you know you know you're getting a solid running back yeah, what I what I really like about Jonathan Taylor, first off, that defense is absolutely incredible. They should even if the offense is a little stagnant, they're going to be in the game no matter what. Um, so I really like that. I've already said their offensive line is incredible. He is an absolute rushing beast, and he's got decent hands. I know that Naeem Hines is there. Um and he's excellent, so he's going to shed a lot of work there. But, you know, Carson Wentz is pretty good at throwing to the running back. And, man, you just look at how, how Jonathan Taylor finished last year. Week 13, after, their, after his injury, week 13, 20 fantasy points, 28, 16, 20. Then week 17, you know, week 17 is kind of like a, get me over week, but still 37 points, 250 yards. He finished so unbelievably strong that he was, I mean, he was monstrous. I was using him on, on DFS every, every week. Yeah. He closed, he closed the season just so freakish and you're right. The top 10 this year, like everybody has huge upside. Like would can Saquon Barkley catch 60 balls this year, definitely. And can that make him a top three player? For sure. You know, Aaron Jones, does A.J. Dillon take just a complete back seat and he's he rattles off another 16, 17 rushing touchdowns? Definitely could happen. So there are question marks, right? Like you said, after the top three or four. Um, but Jonathan Taylor, man, I just see, 
I just see so much consistency there. I, I don't think that he can actually end up as the running back one, especially in any sort of PPR because of the lack of receptions. But again, I think that team is just going to be so consistent outside of injuries that, that I'm very excited about the consistency with him. Um, let's see some other players that we really see differently. We already talked J.K. Dobbins. I think I'm going to seed a few points there and really come back to you where J.K. Dobbins is more of a back-end running back two than a mid- to high-end running back two that I had him at 14. The biggest difference is Clyde Edwards-Alaire. Uh, and I'm not sure. I think, I think I'm, I'm pretty okay with my ranking. I have him at 16, which, yeah. you know, we said that his touchdown luck was really bad last year. He should score more touchdowns. Um, second year with that system, he should be a little bit more trusted. You've got him at 24, though. I think if I were to revise my rankings, I would have him at more like 19 or 20 mm-hmm. uh, in f- ahead of Chase Edmonds. Um, but yeah, I... He's one of those players that I just have some unspoken bias against. Maybe it's because of his average <laughs> draft place last year when he was like being sick, uh, going sixth overall or something like that. He did burn a lot of people. I did not get burnt, so I don't have that taste in my mouth. But um, I didn't either. I mean, I didn't. I didn't take him. I didn't have the chance to. Do, but mm. good thing. Uh, let's see. It. We both kind of dislike Swift, but you like you dislike him more than I. I've got him at 17. You've got him at 23. Honestly, I, I think we've talked um, quite a bit about DeAndre Swift. I think we both, you know, he's he's being drafted higher than that, and so yeah, I think we're we're not going <laughs> to draft that guy. Yeah, we're we're kind of on the same page there. We're we're, we're probably so not. Out. Yeah, we're not going to get him. Um, Man, this is a player that we've talked ever since, I think, just the end of the season. You are much higher on James Robinson. You've got him at 16. I've got him at 22. I guess my fears are that, you know, it's still a bit unproven, even after a full season of just being beast as hell and fighting all of the odds, being on a horrific team. Their defense is atrocious. Their offensive line is disgusting. He doesn't actually catch very many balls, but when he when he rushes the ball, it is unbelievable. He's so potent. He shakes defenders, but I'm just so scared. And now you've got a rookie quarterback coming in, you know, and their quarterback was terrible last year, but rookies can go every which way. They can throw so many interceptions. Um, Trevor Lawrence will steal rush attempts and, you know, okay. A Russian quarterback, maybe it opens up, opens things up a little bit for James Robinson, but still he's going to take rushing work. He might even take goal line work. Trevor Lawrence is a very good runner. So <sighs> I really like where I've got him at. If, yeah. if I was really, really trying to stretch or something like that, then he could maybe go to 18 for me, but or maybe 17 with Melvin Gordon going in front of him, but mm. I don't think so really. I think 16 is, is perfect for me, for him. Like, I think that's like just about exactly where I'd take him. You know, I don't feel like aggressive about 
a lot of people over him. I would definitely want Clyde over him. You know, I would definitely want Chris Carson. And, and honestly, we have Chris Carson in 1918. I think a lot of that is injury for me. Um, but as like a just skill set, I probably want Chris Carson quite a bit more. But I feel that. We'll see how obviously the draft shakes out. Um, Jacksonville could easily draft a running back, and that would shake things up pretty pretty nastily. But um, we'll keep looking there. I'm let's, probably way too low on Clyde. You're right. Eh. Let's check out wide receiver differences. Um, you know, honestly, we pr- we see neck and neck on a lot of players. I guess I'm a little higher on Julio. I have him at nine. You have him at 13. But, you know, that's basically back-end wide receiver one range. I, I don't think that that's a crazy difference. Like, you've got Justin Jefferson six spots over Julio. I've got Justin Jefferson uh, right after Julio. So that's kind of a, that's a pretty big difference of opinion. You you like Justin Jefferson quite a bit more than Julio this year, I guess. Yeah, I do. I mean, the injury risk with with Julio is rough. Um, One thing that did get me kind of excited was that I didn't do touchdown luck for quarterbacks, but Matt Ryan was number one in um, attempts or touchdowns per attempt or luck unluckiest. He should have scored a lot more touchdowns. I think he only scored 26 touchdowns. He should have been more in like the low thirties range. So Matt Ryan should get his when it comes to touchdowns this year, hopefully. And I think Julio benefit as long as he can stay on the field, but Justin Jefferson with the youth, the health Kirk cousins, I can't knock you there, but I would take, I would take Julio over him. Let's see, uh, Adam Thielen. I was a little surprised. You know, I've been kind of hyping Adam Thielen up, and I'm not sure if this comes down to me bumping him a little bit back from seeing that lucky touchdown number, but you've got him at 12. I've got him at 16. So I think, that's honestly. Surprising. That's yeah. really surprising to me. That, I know. That you've got him. Uh, yeah. I think. I think I had him like right. I think I just honestly, I think I had him just one spot ahead of um, Chris Godwin. Um, and so I, I was just like, eh, kind of a little bit more excited on the, on the Chris Godwin thing because Chris Godwin got pretty unlucky with, with his injuries and his touchdowns. So I'm kind of a bit more in on that. Where did I have Chris Godwin? I don't, I probably won't pick Chris Godwin or Mike Evans. I know. I think you, I don't know if you missed him or you snubbed him, but I think you left him off your initial top 30, which I cannot believe that Mike Evans would miss your top 30. So I'll let you, I'll let you get them in there somewhere at some point. I don't know. Like I said, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't like those players. I don't like playing them in fantasy. I'll just put a, a WND next to it will not draft on, on both of those players. I get it, man. I, I'm kind of excited for, for both of them, but uh, let's see. Honestly, we see pretty closely um, Hollywood Brown, Marquise Brown. I have him as a back end wide receiver two at 23. You've got him down at 29. That's a little harsh. Yeah, I probably should have bumped him up a little bit. He, he maybe, be, he maybe belongs uh, about 24 ish yeah that feels bit like i've got him right ahead of kenny g you've got kenny galladay at 19 but and, and i can't knock you there but 
I don't know. Kenny G swapping teams. Mm, maybe he should really be above Hollywood Brown just because of the targets. Marquise Brown is more just home run ball, but um, ah, it's going to be a tough one for me to fight. I, I know that that choice is going to come whether to draft. Well, maybe it won't. Maybe maybe Kenny Galladay will be drafted at like wide receiver 15 and, and neither yeah, of us will have him. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have – yeah, we're not going to have the chance to choose Kenny Galladay at his – like where he's yeah. worth going. One player I know we see differently – and, and it's probably on me, C.D. Lamb. You've got at 18. I've got him at 32. That can't be right. I can't have him there. If I'm really looking, I would put him right ahead of Odell at 28 is what I would really have him as. I just, I don't know. I don't know, man. I mean, when Dak was there, Amari was the clear one, but CD was definitely getting his. I just think that Amari is, is still the one. And I think that those absurd games with Dak where they were having to do 40 plus points because their defense was so atrocious. And I know it's still atrocious, but I think that, I think that passing attack takes just a little step back. And I think it's at the detriment of CD, but I know that you, I know you're very much in love with CD. So we, we really don't have to talk about that one too much at all. I so need to go ahead. My thing is not so much that like, I think that because I've got Amari at 15 and CD at 21. So like, yeah. that's like six spots difference. And that's not me saying, sure. I think Amari is the value and CD or like, or he's better and, and CD is this much worse or something like that. Like, it could very much be that one of them has all of the value next mm. year. That like one of them could just be like the one you want. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think CD has that, that level of value. Like he could just become the guy or something like that. Or it could be like a, you know, one of those two wide receiver things that i mean we've talked about this where it's just like one gets tons of points per game and it's kind of because the other one is doing the same thing every week Mm -hmm. um but yeah that's it's 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 not a really it's a dice roll but it's not really a dice roll because it's better odds than, than that no, I think you're absolutely right. Like, even when I'm looking at it, like we talked about Hollywood Brown, Kenny G. I think CD probably goes above those for me. So, yeah, I, I've got to, I've got to adjust there. Um, man, it's like I said before, show. It's kind of funny how some of these like literally line up perfect. Like Cortland Sutton, we both have at 31, right behind Brandon Ayuk at 30. So, we certainly we see Allen Robinson at. We both have Allen <laughs> Robinson at 11. Yeah, I think that's probably you know close to where he'll go and where he should go yeah it's kind of funny how we ended up exactly the same joe mixon at running back 15 we both have um nice tight end a uh, quarterback differences i know i'm super i'm i think i'm a little bit ridiculous but i'm putting kyler murray as my qb1 you've got him at three but Kyler Murray with the weapons he has and that defense not being good and the running back game being pretty mixed between chase Edmonds and James Connor. 
I just see such a massive year coming for Kyler Murray. But, um, I mean, you've got him at three. It's not a huge difference there. Um, I am a little surprised. You've got Dak over Lamar Jackson this year. That's pretty bold. Yeah, I mean, if we're being honest, like my top six or so really don't matter because that's not the pool of QBs that I – that I choose from, but I feel that I, I have been a Dak Prescott fantasy owner in the past and it has been so bountiful. (laughs) I can remember weeks of 40, 40 fantasy points and, and, and the like, and Mm -hmm. I, I won't forget it anytime soon. It can be nasty, especially if you play in any sort of like three plus touchdown league or massive play league. Like he offers, he offers so much like those blow up games rather than just pure stat. Um, Yeah. I'm with you there. Um, Some other players we see kind of differently. Uh, Kirk Cousins, it kind of makes sense. You're high on both Justin Jefferson and Thielen. You've got him as 11, so you have him as a draftable quarterback. I have him at 16. He had a lot more touchdowns than he deserved. Um, I think that defense gets a little bit better. But um, So you'd be cool with uh, Kirk Cousins kind of being a late-round pick for you. Yeah, I think so. It wouldn't be so bad. Who am I kind of higher on? Um, as kind of a back end, I guess I see Matthew Stafford as a, more, a little bit more exciting. I've got him at uh, 13. You've got him at 16. So he's right at the cusp of where I'd, I'd enjoy taking him. I mean, Matthew Stafford is a fantastic quarterback, really the only, and with great weapons there. The only thing that I kind of see negatively is that defense is just so unbelievably good that he probably won't have to do very much um, all the time. But I see him um, as a streamer I'm targeting. Baker down here. True. Baker, you, you like a little more than me, right? You've got him at 14. I've got him at 19. I mean, Odell and Jarvis, pretty nasty weapons. Kareem Hunt in the passing game. But, you know, as we just talked about with Clowney going there, the defense probably gets a little bit better. And Chubb and even Kareem Hunt in the rushing game, they just like to keep it on the ground so much. Um yeah, I don't see Baker as, you know, matchup play from time to time, but they're in a conference that is so intensely defensive anyways that, you know, if they get a home home game, I don't mind streaming him, but I'm not going to draft him for sure. Um, who am I hiring? Well, <laughs> I did. I put another will not uh, will not draft next to Russell Wilson and even though I put him at number 10, so I'm not going to get a piece of Russell Wilson either, but um, I guess I see him a little higher than you. Uh, There's just no, no chance in hell that I touch him. (laughs) I think we see pretty much eye to eye. Um, We're not going to draft the the top ends and we're looking for guys like Tom Brady, Jalen hurts, you know, Justin Herbert. I think we're looking at those guys. Um, Justin Herbert looks juicy. Yeah, he does. He does look juicy. Tight ends. Literally our top five are exactly the same. Kelsey, Waller, Kittle, Andrews, Hawkinson. We see exactly the same. Um, 
Then I bumped up Noah Fant to six. You've got him at eight, but who cares? I mean, there you, you see Gronk a little higher. You see Gronk at seven. I see him at 12. That's probably our biggest difference. Yeah, I don't. Oh, man. You know what? Mm-hmm. I did not know that Jared Cook was at the chargers he is at the chargers yeah i did not know that i feel like such a dummy (laughs) it's not a big deal when i saw him on the list i was thinking who the hell is gonna throw to him oh right 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 no he should be i would yeah i would might slot him in somewhere better yeah he should be a fine option but you know so many mouths to feed there keenan allen obviously mike williams eckler in the past game I think him, I think Jared Cook might be a little bit more eye candy than um at first, you know, on first impression. But uh yeah, those are kind of our bigger differences. Again, it will certainly change as the draft and the offseason continue. But um it was fun, man. I like to see our differences. And let's get into we've got a movie this week. The Thin Blue Line, a documentary that you had suggested last week after we had talked about, we talked about obviously searching for Sugar Man, but we also talked about how I was getting into the serial podcast finally, and and you brought this up. You brought up um, the director, Errol Morris's uh, filmography, and uh, and said that this was kind of the the gem in your eyes. So we were like, let's, let's dive in, man. Can you, do you kind of recall any sort of history of, of how you found this film or, or when you had seen it? Yeah. Um, I was going to school at Southern union and in the shop, uh, learning how to work on cars and stuff. And there was this totally anomalous person in my life, Brian, and he was the, um, he was the assistant and as far as technicians in the south go brian was he was totally different like he wow. was cultured and he had all kinds of like music and and movie taste and he had a, opinions on things and it was crazy so <laughs> so being having him as an instructor was awesome and he turned me on to this he turned me on to a lot of different uh documentaries and stuff like that so this was this was totally probably well this was like my second favorite thing that he that he turned me on to was this the first of um errol morris's work that you watched yeah i gotcha well man um you know first impressions Wow. Unbelievably great. Really, really love this film. Um, even with you kind of hyping it up last week, you know, usually a little bias, it, it paints, you know, it gets me doubting, but man, I was just sucked into this. Um, I don't even really know where to start, man. Do you want to, do you want to kind of take it a little bit, talk about your um, feelings towards it, your history, any, any teasers that you've read about or, or whatnot while I gather myself. Right. Um, well, I really didn't go in in depth with the teasers and, and the like 
research on what happened post film or anything like that because to me the magic of this one is almost not knowing like really just kind of being in the dark yeah uh, the and the real magic of it all is how morris puts it together it's kind of it's like it's very suspenseful some of it's a little corny like some of the animation in it there was like the 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 hypnotist's clock going back and forth and right but i mean if you just ignore that the bad animation and just try to try to um really get into it it's it's like a whole like vibe and uh you know he presents all of the information in the perfect order and the perfect way i was just thinking that like you know it, it, it lulls you into this 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 whole thing where you're where you're kind of believing randall you know you you think that that he's been wronged and this crazy young kid is is to blame for this this night and this killing and then they throw you this whole they he'll just throw you a curveball that makes you not even know what you think anymore such as that guy who has like the picture um he has like the photographic memory the one who supposedly went past and saw that there were two men in the car right um so the magic of it is that you really just don't know and and that's the way that the director lays it out i mean well that's obviously the way the story is i'm sure it I mean, if you ask me, I think most likely Randall has some level of innocence, but I don't know, man. That's the magic of this movie. You just, nobody will ever know. And the whole ride is just compact into the movie. Like, if some if you sit someone in front of it and they watch it you don't have to explain anything you know it's like you just have to deal with the twists and the turns and if someone tells you they know what happened they're lying yeah know? for sure yeah i i want to just back up to kind of where you first started which was the the pacing of the film and the uh, revealing of different pieces of knowledge. And, and I think uh, like, like you said, it's one of the things I most appreciated because I was a little bit nervous going into this that, you know, I told you we were just coming, I was just coming off of the serial podcast and I, I really disliked some parts about that podcast, particularly the narrator just being so seemingly biased towards whether the um, arrested man had actually done the murder or not. I mean, and she kept trying to say, like, I want to remain unbiased. I'm not going to, like, say who who I believe or whatever. But 
it was very clear. I mean, it was incredibly clear who she thought kill, uh, if he killed her or not, but in, in the director in this, it's nice that he lays things out a little bit so that, um, you know, it's not as obvious, like you said, but at the same time, he does have a lot of control and, and he's, he does bias us by what questions are asked. You know, how does he structure things? He does paint a picture, but like you said, he does it in a great way so that he's kind of biasing you towards uh, thinking either, either could have done it. Right. I mean, he biases you towards that, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, I totally agree. I love that part about it. Um, I think that the, the first thing that popped out to me was during the opening credits when it said that Philip Glass did the score and the compositions. I mean, he is historically renowned. And I don't know if I've ever actually seen any of his other works besides the Truman Show, um, but I love that soundtrack and I've heard great things about his other work. So I was like, whoa, he's got, um, he's got Philip Glass doing the score of a documentary. That is badass. And then I saw in the wiki that they were actually kind of a, a team for a while. Like he, he did a few of the scores. So that was really exciting. And I think it really helped. Um, I mean, it paced things well and added to the intensity. So I was super stoked about that. Um, yeah, I think he did a, he did the score for this Errol Morris thing that I really don't like. Oh, um, it's called the Fog of War. Oh, it's the synopsis seemed really interesting, and then I tried to watch it, and it was so very boring. Oh, Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, he that supposedly ha he supposedly has all of the secrets. Oh, I see. Whatever is pretty boring. Oh, that that could be dry for sure. Um, I think that some of my favorite parts were, well, first off, just how how he frames the interviewee. And I, I recognize that the Wikipedia also commented on this, but it was so striking just from the very first opening shot of um, Randall doing an interview. It's like, wow, how did he, it's something to do with like the lighting and the angle. I mean, each interviewee is just so interesting and it, it's positioned so well that, it makes like uh, something you'd see on like the history channel look like a cinema movie, you know, does that yeah, make, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's, that's actually like one of like the trademark Errol Morris things. Like, like when you watch Vernon, Florida and stuff like that, it's exactly the same. Damn. It's, it's, it's beautiful the way he frames the shot. Mm. Like those country guys, those, you know, or those like uh, those worker guys or whatever mm -hmm. that they showed in this film. Yeah. Those guys were great. And even like when they interview um, David, David Harris's friends who are just like out 
in the hicks of texas like in the country with like grass and swamp behind them oh yeah it's that's still, the people i'm talking about uh, oh yeah it still looks incredible i was like what the what the fuck are they how is this possible it was it was really cool and um that was very engrossing and it made me pay attention to each person's interview and especially man almost all of the uh interviewees are so well spoken and uh not just like understandable but just the way it's almost like they're reading almost a script but obviously it's not so uh yeah really exciting how he frames things um I was really surprised, honestly, the la- the closing shot, the final interview with David Harris um, oh, yeah. being of the tape recorder. I, I don't know why, but I did not realize that that interview was with this director and was was intended for this film. I honestly thought that that interview was conducted by another media person who was um, you know, getting his last words before execution or something to that end. Um, man, Errol Morris, like, I don't know about you, but he talks really weird in my opinion. Like that's not the voice or questions that I was expecting him to have given from the answers that we got. It was, was it a little weird to you or no? Yeah. I mean, he does have kind of a funny little voice. He's a funny little man. Yeah, like he almost sounded like a like a college news reporter or something, like really trying to press them. And I don't know. I was just shocked. You know, the whole movie, we don't hear the questions um, from his side. We just hear the answers. And so when you heard the voice, I was like, what? But uh, that was that was kind of a trippy scene. Wikipedia says that he, he actually wanted to film that interview but his camera broke and man, it, it does make it kind of stronger to just have that tape recorder. Doesn't it? It's kind of eerie. Yeah, it really is. It, it's the kind of stuff that will always push everyone towards the David did it side. It's like one of those really like happy accidents that, that ends up playing out so well. Um, some of my other things like, uh, my favorite interviewee was easily the fat female attorney who like mm-hmm. wanted to help Randall Adams. And she, she's just like, she just talks so fantastically. Like I just, I was so, I felt so much compassion. Honestly, she, she was one of those characters that like you like them so much that you, you just agree with them. Like, yeah, she thinks that Randall's innocent. Like, yeah. And she's making a lot of great points. Um, sure. He's innocent. Like she wins you over so well. Um, really loved her on the opposite spectrum, dude, the really ditzy blonde lady who, Oh my God. Oh dude. I was, I was like almost pissed off. But they at least explained how, like, she was just, like, full of shit. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that they, but I'm a little upset that the woman who said she was full of shit didn't really get the time of day. But, man, for her to be like, oh, I've just always wanted to be a detective. I've always wanted to get into the middle of shit and be important. I'm like, dude, that's the worst witness I've ever heard. Somebody who actively like wants to go snoop out dirt and like be involved. <laughs> what? Do you, how yeah. was she ever taken seriously? It's ridiculous. 
and she's like bragging about it. Like, Oh, I've always wanted to be involved. And I was so happy to be able to sentence this man to death. Like, God damn woman, you pissed me off. (sighs) But that was the, that was the point of her being there, man. I can't blame the, the director, but, and then dude, the way she was saying like, Oh, I definitely saw his face, you know, right in the middle of the night with just because his windows down driving on a highway and you're already past them. There's just no damn way. Like, I can't imagine any juror being like, of course, that is ridiculous that you think that you can pass somebody by, you know, and and everybody uh, rubbernecks a uh, traffic stop. But how many times are you going to be able to see a face clearly, let alone like three months after it's taken place? You still remember just ridiculous. Oh, I was pissed, man. One of the strongest points moments for me, I guess, maybe, maybe just as a human, but I think maybe even particularly as a young father, when David Harris talks about why he thinks that he's fucked up and commits so many crimes. And he talks about his brother drowning at the age of four when he's three years old and his father um, seemingly not be able to look past that and to always treat David Harris as like, you know, a second rate citizen or whatever, and not really be there for him. That killed me, man. Yeah, that's awful. I mean, I don't know how much. And David Harris seemed very um, honest and, and upfront in his opinions. It didn't seem like one of those things where he's just trying to throw excuses. I really think he was trying to reconcile and understand his his psychology. And it just fucked me, man. It really did. Like. Because, you know, the dad was supposed to be keeping an eye on them. And and I do that kind of shit, right? Like I put both my kids in the bath and then I go to the restroom or whatever, or I go read a book on my bed and I'm 10 feet away or whatever. And I'm always on the, you know, I'm trying to be vigilant, but that just like destroyed me. And I can absolutely appreciate where that father was to, to step away for a while your kid hops out of the pool and like runs to your neighbor's house. And when I was a kid, you know, my old, I had almost the exact same situation. My, uh, my neighbors were an elderly couple with a pool and thankfully it was quite fenced up and they did a good job keeping it fenced up, but it would have been easy for me to run over there and fall in. And it just, I don't know, maybe that's too personal for, uh, for the podcast, but it, it I was, almost drowned as a child as well as that a, right? in a family pond. In a family pond, one of your in my house. It was right behind my house. Holy shit, man! Friggin this dude who was mowing the grass saved me. I was like two. Oh my god, Three John! I... Wow, dude! Your lawnman saw it and jumped in and got you out. Yeah, he didn't even know how to uh, swim. Holy shit, man! How deep this? So this pond was like swimmable. It's not like like a puddle. It's like an oh, actual. Dude no dude it was boatable oh my god and you were like in it like drowning in and he jumped in like presumably drowning yeah like he jumped in where he could still stand like he didn't suffer health issues from it right i I mean no i I, I don't i assume he did not drown 
Okay, I didn't mean drown, but oh man, that well, then I I'm sure that that part made an impact on you as well, man. That was a really tough part to hear. And uh, and great of um, Morris to tease that out, you know, it, it added a lot, I think. Um, I think the reenactment scenes were when I was watching it. I, I don't think I liked them very much. You know, the first time it didn't really strike me as odd, but then as, as they were going through and it was kind of changing um, what was happening based on the story at the time, I was like, I'm not, I'm not really into this, particularly that they all, he always used the gunshot to the head as like the transition scene. I mean, it was striking, but I don't know. I think it was a little overplayed, but then as I kind of was just thinking about it more, I actually really do like it in retrospect. And that's weird to say, cause like you like it after you've seen it when you didn't, you didn't like it, but the way that it did change and it kind of shaped your opinion to just put things on the screen, you know, so you can try to visualize what each person's trying to say. It was a very cool concept to do that. Um, I know the Wikipedia says that that was the reason he was snubbed for an Oscar that year is because they didn't think reenactments should be, should be put onto documentaries. But um, I think it's pretty strong. I think, I think if anything, he was kind of a pioneer in the, in doing stuff like that. 1988, Mm. you know, Docs. I mean, I don't know a lot of really amazing docs that that are 1988 or or before. True. I don't like. I don't really know any. If we're being honest, like mm. all of the best documentaries that I've seen in my life have been like post 2000 and stuff like that. So. Yeah, and you you have watched. I have watched very few documentaries. So. So, yeah, I could absolutely see that being pretty groundbreaking, and, and I enjoy it. I, I certainly want to uh, to check out the remaining works, particularly if the interviewees are framed as well as you said um, in the other ones. Well, if you want to see the next best one, I would say it's Vernon, Florida. Okay. All right. I'll it's definitely... not going to be as hard-hitting, but it's good. I'll check that one out for sure. Um, you mentioned also like the ambiguity towards who killed the cop, who was in the car at the time. And, and I, I agree with you at the end of the day, I think that especially that final interview where he basically says that, you know, David Harris basically says it's a shame that Randall was in jail this whole time because he's, he really is innocent and, you can think of there's probably thousands of innocent people who have gone to jail for significant time. And is that, is that an interview that he's just saying that because now he's on death row and he knows like there's nothing that he, it doesn't really matter. And let's just go ahead and get this fellow criminal out of jail. It doesn't really feel like that to me. It really feels if anything, it almost feels like he's kind of ashamed to say outright 
that Randall is fully innocent because he knows that he caused Randall to go to jail for 12 years. And so, yeah, if anything, I think he's kind of ashamed of it, but he really fully believes it. Um, so I, I walk out saying that Randall at least did not pull the trigger. Um, but there's a lot of sticky parts like you brought up. Like there are reasons to believe that Randall at least had something to do with it. Um, you know, he was there, you know, he was, he was maybe there. He could have easily been like, why would Randall's brother not testify for him if he actually knew that Randall was at home with him watching some TV? I mean, what is the reason? Was it maybe fearing some sort of like illegal persecution by townspeople or something? I mean, I was shocked that any you know, of the cops basically said like, well, we think he was afraid of, of, perjury of lying on the witness stand so that's why he didn't interview but if randall was really there at home then he has no reason to fear that and he should have so that shocked me and that made me be like wow maybe randall at least wasn't home at that time um a couple other things like when randall is describing how david harris showed him all of his guns and and randall apparently got pretty nervous and told him to stop playing with him and put him away. Why did Randall say that he took the pistol himself and put it under the driver's seat? It made no sense. They were putting the guns in the trunk. And yet Randall says he took the pistol and put it under the driver's seat. Yeah, that's I, definitely weird. Super weird. Like, why did he even take the gun into his own hands and then place it there? I was like, what the fuck are you? I mean, he was, I guess, drunk and high, but still drunk and high. It makes so little sense. So, and then, um, yeah, I guess those two points were really like Randall may have had something to do with this. Um, so I love the ambiguity and I love that it's not, it's not the ambiguity that the serial podcast tried for where it's ambiguity, but the narrator fully believes something to me. I think Errol Morris really did a great job of making it purposefully ambiguous and ambiguous. And um, you know, you could lean either way on it. Um, I did see in on the wiki that, that Randall Harris, uh, Randall, um, did get out. Uh, he got let out of jail um, after 12 years because they were, which is not in the, which is not in the movie. I don't, I don't think. So that was kind of a cool add on that the state looked back and they didn't even want to try it. They just let him go. And, but then he unfortunately died of brain cancer actually in uh, 2001, but uh, wow. really cool that this movie kind of, Almost, I, I think it did what the serial podcast was trying to do, which was exonerate or at least bring to light a situation that seemingly was really unfair and unjust and try to change it. And this, this movie um, brought a lot of support to, to Randall's side and probably prompted the release of him. So kind of amazing to think about what a filmmaker can actually do uh, in the real world. Yeah, and that's with, good with serial. It's, 
like uh you know i i think sarah sarah koenig the person who runs yeah. it yeah i think she really cares about adnan right or she did in season one um there's an hbo series about him it's not just that like there's there's all wow. kinds of stuff about oh. adnan i have and, not seen uh, it I just think that's like one of the most hopeless cases of all time. There's so little evidence. It's so too little, too late. Right. It's like a different era. We're talking about like pay phones and stuff like that. And nobody can remember anything. It's just so hopeless. Um, yeah. Where this case was basically, there was so little evidence and the evidence was so sketchy up front that looking back it's like how did he get um guilty and, and adnan's case you know it's similar but at the time of the trial the um the evidence was pretty strong and, and you're right by now there's no use there's no chance in changing it so man this was this was again such a great film i really really enjoyed so much about it um do you have any kind of closing thoughts on it no, I'm good. Well, uh, I think we'll probably just talk off pod about what we want to do next week. I am excited to watch Vernon, Florida, but but I think we can maybe dive into a maybe a different course or a different genre for our next discussion. Um, but we'll talk off pod. I'm done. And we'll see you guys next week. All right. See you next week. Thank you.